Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you uh, as a people in need of your word, in need of you. Um, this is uh, not always one of the easier pieces of word to chew on. Let's pray that you'll help us to chew on it and be convicted where we need to be convicted. May we find grace where we need to find grace. Pray that, Lord, you'll help us to know your gospel today. I help you, pray that your spirit help us to see what the gospel is not and to live in the truth of the gospel that you came to proclaim. Pray that you'll help us to be a people who understand you and your word today, and may we understand where real peace is found. We began that discussion last week, May. You convict us as to what kingdom we're living in today, what kingdom we're putting our hope in. We ask all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated now. Thank you very much. All right, so um, we're going to start a new tradition here at Gateway in light of uh, today's passage. Um, We feel that it's necessary to exalt ourselves as pastors or as preachers, so we're going to preach from above from now on. So uh, from this day forward, every Sunday, I will be exalted above you and preach from the steps. We feel it's appropriate. No, I mean, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and scribes of that time. They were uh, exalting themselves uh, in this passage, and Jesus is proclaiming that you are either with your words and mostly with your deeds, proclaiming a false gospel because of it. And so today we're going to wrestle with that. Um, So I do want to spend a little time with some background for you before we dive uh, totally into today's scripture. But we began last week this conversation of... uh, what kingdom we're placing our hope in. And we discussed last week that uh, these descendants of David were looking to find another David. We're looking to find another human being to come and exalt them to a place, to a kingdom more their own, to remove them from slavery within Rome, from being captured people within the Roman Empire, and set up a kingdom that was like David's kingdom. And David had led a kingdom of great power and great authority within the world. He had conquered and won many wars and established a broad kingdom, and Israel was, had a lot of freedom in it. And they were looking back fondly upon that time, and they were saying, you know, they were longing for that another David to come. And Jesus came along and said, well, why is it then that David said, in my family line will be a Lord, will be a Messiah, will be a son of David um, that is more than just a human, regular human being? And we talked about last week because it was our deepest need is not to find a better kingdom here on earth. It's to find a kingdom out of earth or eventually in a new earth. This old earth will go away and a new earth will come. But ultimately heaven before that new earth. And Jesus was saying, you have a longing that this world and you yourself cannot meet. There's. You need something greater. And so there is a Messiah. There is a greater than David in David's family line because that is what you need. And today, um, Jesus 
sort of takes this two or three chapter section of this conversation with Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders and gets to the point bluntly. Um, And ultimately what he's saying is because of where you have put your hope, because of what kingdom you are longing for, you are living in such a way that is creating a burden for all that is in your area. You are being a weight to them. You are not being the gospel to them. So today we're going to talk about the gospel. A little bit later we're going to talk about the burden that these people are putting on their friends, their family, those within their um, area, and we're going to talk about why. Um, But just to, to go back a little bit more. So this is... Passion Week. This is in the middle of the last week of Jesus' uh, uh, life before the cross. And uh, we started this conversation, basically the Passion Week, with Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, we talked about months ago now. The expectation, the reason for the celebration was they were expecting a leader to come and like we talked about last week, establish a new kingdom, remove Israel from, Romans cap- from Roman capture, and set up a new kingdom to conquer Rome, to free Israel. And they were excited about it, and Jesus immediately says he's going to die. And that really confused some people. Then he comes into the temple, and he cleans, cleanses the temple. He throws people out, he whips, clears it out. And what he did was, he said that the temple is a place that is designed and was made for holiness. And what that means is to be set apart only for God's use. And people were using the temple for all kinds of different things. Specifically, the Pharisees and the scribes. We read about that today. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But then Jesus, uh, after he cleanses the temple, he curses the fig tree who was bear- that was bearing no fruit. And he says to the fig tree, may, your, may no fruit ever come to you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And so the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree is what really made the Pharisees and the scribes go, okay, what the heck is going on here? Um, here's the reason why this was such a big deal. The Pharisees and the scribes were the rulers and the leaders of the temple. They were using it for their use. They weren't using it for God's use. They weren't setting it apart. They weren't setting themselves apart for God. And Jesus said the temple is to be holy, to be set apart. And so he cleansed it. So he's taking authority from what the Pharisees and scribes have grabbed for themselves. And he's trying to take it back for God. And he ultimately does. Then this idea of fruit, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the ones who were the sort of the judge of fruit. They've proclaimed themselves as the understanders of the law, the ones who knew how people should act and how they should behave and what obedience looked like. And they were the ones who said, yes, look, I'm fruitful and you're not. And conveniently, it almost always worked out that way. I'm fruitful and you're not. Conveniently for the Pharisees and the scribes anyways. So Jesus When he comes along and he does these two things, he's immediately speaking on their authority. And this concerns them because he's not speaking good of the way they're using their authority. Um, So you see uh, sort of in the middle there of our story, after these uh, 
well, let's talk about the parables in there. So then Jesus tells a couple of parables. Um, one, the parable of the two sons, which we talked about in sort of parallel to the parable of the lost sons. Um, you have two sons of one father, and one um, says to his father, I will not be obedient to you. His father asks him uh, in the parable of the uh, two sons to go and to tend his uh, field, to go and work in his field. And the son says, no. The first son says no to his father. The second son says, yes, I will go. And then the first son understands his mistake. He understands eventually his father's authority and ends up going to the field in spite of saying he wasn't and working it. The second son, in spite of having told his father he would, doesn't go to the field at all, doesn't even think about going to the field at all. He just said what he wanted, what was necessary to his father to move on with his life and not give any power or authority to his father's words. So you have uh, this parable of authority, of what is true obedience, and it goes on to talk about how the Pharisees and scribes are like the second son, and that prostitutes and tax collectors will be forgiven before they will, because what forgiveness is based upon is not on your appearance, not based upon your work. It's based upon what Christ did for you. And obedience follows that forgiveness. Obedience follows the recognition of the need to be forgiven, the authority of the forgiver, and the freedom that comes with it. And the the first son ultimately recognizes that and is obedient. And he follows his father's word and goes to the field. And so... Then we come to the parable of the tenants. So there's a owner of a vineyard who set, he set this whole entire vineyard up be, to be ready to work. There was nothing that was necessary to be done by the workers to work it other than to show up and start reaping the vines and making, reaping the grapes, getting the, vine, getting the grapes off the vape, putting it into the press, making your, your wine. Every, the vineyard was totally set up for him. And an owner says, listen, I will pay you, or I will let you use my field if you pay me a certain amount of profits or a certain rent or whatever. I don't, we don't know what exactly the um, agreement was. So they say, yeah, we'll do it. And he, after setting up the vineyard, moves away. He lives far away from where the vineyard is. And after a while, he sends some of his servants back to collect the agreement. And... The workers did not trust or did not expect that they could get what they wanted out of the vineyard if they remained under the authority of the owner of the vineyard. So what did they do? They harmed, they beat, they killed the servants that came to collect what they had agreed upon they would give. Then uh, he sends some more. Same thing happens, and ultimately he sends his own son to collect the agreement that was put forth, and they end up even killing the son. What the owner of the vineyard never did, which is what we talked about, was use the law. There's no point in the story where he says, okay, I'm going to send what would have been the police at that time. I'm going to, you have clearly broken our agreement, you have broken the law, I'm going to send forth 
a army or a police force or whatever to take back my land by force. What he wanted to do, ultimately, by sending his son was to realize what he wanted was a relationship. He didn't want ownership. He didn't want force. He didn't want a relationship based upon his power over ours. He wanted us to realize what he wants from us is to be in relationship with him, to be in his family, to be in his kingdom, to be a part of his royal family like his son is. And so he kept pursuing and he kept pursuing. Ultimately, when they killed the son, you find out that um, at this point, then force is necessary. And so those people ultimately were killed by um, the power of the father, of the son who was killed, the owner of the vineyard. This is all about authority. This is all about trust. This is all about kingdom. Um, Those people who were working the field saw that as their kingdom, saw that as the place where their hope could be found, but not if it was under the authority of the father. They didn't trust that the owner of the field could give them what they longed for if they remained in submission to him, in relationship with him. They recognized his authority. Then you had the, the middle there in verse, uh, chapter 21, 45 and 46 reads this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they had held him to be a prophet. They realized that Jesus was saying, you are misusing your authority. They realized that Jesus was saying, you are not submitting to my authority, or that God, you're not submitting to God's authority. They realized that they, Jesus was saying, you are a bad representation of God. That you are seeking to kill God so you can gain this world. That you are saying with your mouth, yes, you'll be obedient, like the second son, but your actions are totally different. You're being completely disobedient. Then we come to what we began to talk about last week. We wrapped up, or or we summed up last week before we got to uh, the son of David part. Um, The parable of the wedding feast. A giant party is going to be thrown for a... Uh, from a father, his son is going to be married, and he invites a whole bunch of people, totally free, just come, enjoy my party. And they decline. They have other things to do. And so he invites another group of people, and they show up. And this was our uh, a representation of Israel and Gentiles. Um, God says to Israel, I have a abundant joy available to you. I have a, an amazing party available to you. And Israel ultimately comes to the point where they reject God's invitation. And God says, okay, I will invite the Gentiles, which is us, every non-Jew, every non-Israeli, uh, every non-person of the Israeli uh, religion. Um, and then we come to the questions from the human authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And we're going to mostly talk about the uh, Pharisees and scribes today, but... Their concerns, their questions were based upon the law. The first was taxing to Caesar, and then the second was the great commandment. 
And these were all about questioning Jesus' authority again. And then last week was this idea of where are you putting your hope in? Which kingdom are you seeking your joy and your peace in? And then we come to the woe is the Pharisees, today's passage. Um, we read it all, not because we're going to talk about it all today. Um, we're going to talk it over, over maybe uh, one more or two more weeks. I'm not sure yet. Um, that Philip uh, will be taking over next week, so we'll see how it goes. But I'm going to sort of sum up the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes and talk about uh, the beginning part and maybe get into one or two woes. But um, the major problem is because of where they put their kingdom, because of where they put their hope, they're creating a burden on everybody else. And because of where they're putting their kingdom and their hope in, they are preaching or living a false gospel. And that is not what Jesus came to do. Here's what uh, Jesus tells us about these Pharisees and scribes in 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their, Max, they make their, oh, come on, Max, you got it. Yep, yep. Yes. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi. They liked to anoint themselves. They liked to show off their moral behavior. They liked to intermix and mingle and be friends with the important people. They liked to be seated in the important places. They liked to be at the important events. They liked to be seen as important. They liked to be seen as good. They liked to be seen as someone who should be honored. To the point of even giving themselves titles that nobody, nobody actually gave them. Why? We're not really told. I mean, we know some history of them, but... Ultimately, I think two reasons, and they're the two reasons we talk about almost all the time. Um, they were longing for something, and they thought in their power and in their authority they could get it. And deep within themselves, they knew the inadequacies of themselves. They knew the guilt and the shame that was with them always, and they sought to try to make themselves good through their own actions. And as we talked about many months ago now, we judge our moral standing and one of three places. Um, me in relationship with everybody else, which is what the Pharisees and scribes do mostly. Me in relationship to my own ideals, or me in relationship to somebody else as a lawgiver. Um, Jesus, as we talked about, tells us nobody can measure up when compared to what God expects from us. Even ourselves, this week, take a moment and say, for me to be as moral, as ethical, and the best person that I can be, I need to do this. Make the list. See how well you do this week. See how well you do. If you fail, how do you deal with it? And then me in relationship to everybody else. What does this look like? This looks like the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Um, we read the uh, prayer a couple of times now, but one of the uh, Pharisees goes up to the prayer wall, and there is he goes right up to the prayer wall, stands right in front of it, and he looks up to God, and he says, talks about how good he is. And he talks about how bad those people back there, a tax collector was standing in the background, how bad he is. And he says, you know, I am not like so-and-so. I don't do like they do. I don't do this, and I don't do that. And, you know, he's coming to God like he's entitled to be there, like he has some authority because of how he lived to be in the presence of God. And then there was a tax collector standing in the background who was talking about how bad he was, how un, uh, how he had no ability to come to God. There was nothing good about him. There was nothing about him that made him right in God's eyes. He needed God's grace. And we're told that it was the tax collector that left justified. And it was not the Pharisee who thought he was so much better than the tax collector. But this is how we, all of us, seek to make ourselves right. It's how we deal with our guilt. We look at everybody else and we go, you are terrible. And so immediately, what we do is we see only their flaws. In fact, we celebrate their flaws because it's in their flaws that we get our redemption. It's in the evilness of everybody else that I can be good. I need you to be bad for me to be good. That's the opposite of what Jesus did. And so how do you make people bad? You become Pharisees and scribes, and this is what they did. In verse uh, 4, we read that Jesus said, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. Here's what John MacArthur says about them. This is a very vivid picture of somebody living in the time of the Lord, New Testament time. Pictures of someone who has unmercifully loaded his animal, tied on massive burdens to the back of this poor, beleaguered beast. That's exactly what these counterfeit leaders did. They brought people under a pile of burdens, rules, regulations, financial demands, impossible rules. They loaded them down with these things. They were incalculable, and the people were unable to obey them. They were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that were had accumulated by the rabbis, well over 600 of them, to which all the people were supposed to conform themselves. Impossible. But that's the good thing about being the one who writes the laws. When it's impossible for everybody else, it makes you look good. We talked about this with David, or the story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Um, They used the law to try to abuse Daniel, to try to kill Daniel, because Daniel had lived in such a way and worked in such a way for for King Darius that King Darius trusted him more than anybody else, and he became King Darius's go-to guy. And there were people jealous of, of that, and so they used the law to abuse. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
This is more like the wedding feast in the vineyard. Jesus didn't come to make you a worker. There's work that comes in your salvation. But it's born out of freedom. It's not born out of a burden. It's not born out of a necessity. Born out of freedom. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to use the law to burden you. It was a free invite to the feast and the vineyard where the workers were working. We talked about how wine throughout the Bible is a symbol for joy. And God was saying, within my vineyard is joy. And you're free to come and live in my vineyard, to live in my joy. But you have to recognize my authority. You have to recognize your need to be forgiven in order to do so. And I will send my son so that there can be a way made for you. As the father sent his son to try to claim his authority in that vineyard, God sent his son to try to claim his authority in ours. What kingdom do you trust with your joy? What vineyard are you living in? There are two ways I think that this burden is really placed upon us. We talked about one of them, this idea of guilt. Guilt is a burden. Guilt is something that we live with all the time. We know deep within ourselves the shame and the inadequacies of ourselves. We know that we can... We truly fail to live up even to other people, yet we still try to put them down so that we can raise ourselves up. But we know it doesn't work. We know deep within ourselves the ideals that we make for ourselves we fail to live up to all the time. And we know, especially deep within ourselves, there's something about me that is wrong. There's something about me that is gravely evil that I live selfishly almost all the time, if not all the time. We know it, we feel it, and that's why we work so hard to try to hide it, and why we work so hard to try to beat it. And what the Pharisees were doing, because they put their kingdom in being an authority here, was beating the guilty down. They made 600 plus laws so that they can show how good they are and how bad everybody else is. They created this huge burden. Now some of those laws were real laws given to them by God. But most of them were laws that they made. The second thing is they miss the needs of others. They've exalted the importance of the law so they can show how good they are above everything else that they miss the needs of others. Um, so last week, we talked about this question of why is there a son of David in David's lineage? Why is there a Lord? Why is there a Messiah in David's lineage? And Luke, immediately following that, there is a short um, version of this woe to the Pharisees talk. And then 
there is the story of a widow and her offering. So Luke 12, 41 through 40 reads this. The widow's offering. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. There's two important things to realize here. One, the faith of the widow. Her kingdom was not in this world. How do we know? Because she just gave it up. The second thing is, is all the rich people that gave so little in relation to what they have did so to proclaim their own goodness. So much so that here is a lady who after coming and fulfilling the law was left monetarily with nothing. And nobody does anything. They're so caught up in this kingdom, so caught up in this law, that they don't see the need of this lady. The church is more of a burden to her than it is a helper to her. It's not our job to take people's last amounts of money. It's our job to point people to a faith that makes them lose sight of this kingdom as their hope and see the kingdom of God as their hope and recognize when they're missing the things that they need to survive in this world and be there to help them. We don't take the last amount of people's money. We help the people who are near losing all their money. We're not a burden to those people. We point them to a faith that says there will be a better day and we meet their needs here as much as we can currently. That's where the Pharisees have failed. Their fruit did not match up to the gospel that Christ came to, pre- to preach and it didn't match up to the words they were even saying. They were in fact like the fig tree that had no fruit and they were in fact like the wedding feast and when the second group of people showed up to the party, there was that one guy we've talked about who did not have the proper wedding clothes, i.e. his fruit did not match what God said should be, and he was thrown out. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are like the fig tree, you are like the man who didn't have the proper wedding clothes, your fruit is missing, your fruit is a burden, your fruit is not the gospel. Revelation three fifteen through 17 tells us about one of the uh, seven churches in uh, that the, the beginning of Revelation talks about the church of Laodicea, and it says this, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. What that you were either cold or, or would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and not realizing that. They were like the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought that they had all they needed here in this world. And therefore, they were looked at as lukewarm. 
Sometimes we don't quite understand what that passage means. A lot of people seem to interpret it as there are three types of people, those who hate God, those who love God, and somebody who's somehow in between there that sort of is just lukewarm. By that they mean they're indifferent. Um, Here's what John MacArthur says about that passage. And then the statement, the most relentless, overpowering rebuke yet. The rebuke says, basically, I spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. This takes us back to our comments about the water supply. In Heropolis, six miles to the north, there was some famous springs, hot springs, in fact. They were one of the most well-known and popular places for healing. Water was, the water was hot, and you went there and sat in that water, and it was therapeutic power. It's still used today. Heropolis had hot water, and that hot water was therapeutic. In Colossia, 10 miles south to the east, there was a cold stream. We learned that the stream was perennially running and perennial cold, like typical water that flows from the high mountains. The water was thirst-quenching. The water was famous because of its cold, clear character. Um, Another paragraph, I'm not going to read it. But basic gist is, Laodicea in the middle there of these two places had muddy lukewarm water, that if you were to show up and drink, you would be like, ah. It offered no healing, no therapy, or any thirst quenching, no refreshment. And what God is saying is lukewarm people are not people who are indifferent. There are people who are not Christians because they bear no fruit. They do not offer to their community any healing. They do not offer to their community any refreshing. You either love God and you bear those fruits, or you do not and you don't love God. In your life, are you a hot spring to anybody, or are you a refreshment to anybody? Or are you a burden like the Pharisees and the scribes? Of course, one of the uh, ways that healing happens is to cleanse. And of course, you know, one of the things that a lot of people tell you to do when you have a cold or something is to maybe go into like a steam room or something so you can sweat out impurities and cleanse yourself in that way. It also is a way to loosen and to clench or to loosen uh, clenched muscles or to bring about healing through the uh, distribution of blood from that part of the body. To reduce swelling. Refreshing, of course, is just this idea of you have a longing. You have a thirst and a nice, cold, clear cup of water. For all of you, it might not be that appealing. I mean, it's appealing on some level. Um, you guys drink a whole bunch of different stuff. I drink almost solely water because I really love water. So this is something that really hits home for me. I love water. Water is my favorite drink. Um, I don't drink basically anything else. <laughs> Um, so, but water, it's, it's a quencher of thirst. Are you and are we as a church, a church that is helping this community get their thirst quenched? Are we a church and a people that is helping our friends and neighbors in this community to be cleansed, to bring healing to them? This is our question before us today. Are we going to be Pharisees and scribes? Are we going to be burdens on people? Or are we going to be refreshers and healers? Are we going to point them to the God who says, uh, who this is said about in Philippians 2, 5 and 11? This is who we should be 
because this is who Christ was. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is your life representative of a servant, like Christ was, to point to a greater glory, the glory of God? Your life is always pointing to a greater glory. Do you know that? There's always something you're putting your hope in. There's always something you're glorifying. And you're being obedient to that. And you're giving yourself to that. What are you glorifying to this community, to your friends? What are we as a church glorifying? What are we giving to this world as where we place our hope? What are we telling the world? This is what you should long for. For the Pharisees and scribes, it was power, it was authority, it was moral goodness. It was being with the rich. It was accumulating the things of this world. It was having a kingdom of their own here. And because those things were what they were telling the world is where you find your happiness, they lived to get those things. They lived to get power and authority. And we saw how they were doing it earlier by being a burden, by creating a moral law that was impossible to follow and being and degrading people because of their inability to do so. They used the temple to accumulate money. They taxed, they sold, they did all kinds of things there to accumulate money to get the things of this world. Temple was used for so many different things that it was almost a place where you could not find God. There was so much going on, it was so distracting that it was really difficult to be with God there. Are you, is your life so cluttered with stuff that you don't have a temple? You don't have time with God? If it is, what you're telling your friends is all those other things are where your hope lies and where my hope should be found. You have a temple in your life. Do your friends, your family see a temple? Do they see holiness? Do they see a time of set apart for God in your life? You're telling the world you're putting your hope in something. Is it burdensome or is it freeing? Galatians uh, 1, 6-10 through 10 reads, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the ones you receive, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, or I am now, for I am now seeking the approval of man or God, 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Who are you trying to please? The gospel is defined basically as good news. And let's be clear again. We are proclaiming a good news to everybody. As a church, as individuals, we're proclaiming a gospel, a good news. We are proclaiming that I am working to this. I am obedient to this. I am working to get that. I am hoping to have this, or I'm hoping to have that. And it will be good news when I get it. The gospel is not working to. The gospel is it's been done for you. It is good news. It is not good news about what you have to do to get something. It is good news about what has been done for you. What gospel are you proclaiming? What good news are you putting forth to this world? Any gospel other than it is done is burdensome and makes you just like Pharisees and scribes. Verse 2, woes. He speaks of false gospels being, those proclaiming them being accursed. And then he says, woe. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you have shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who, who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he became a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. What kingdom are you a child to? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of hell? What good news are you proclaiming? What hope are you telling this world that is important to you and where they should place their hope? God wants us to find freedom and grace and peace and joy in his kingdom. That's why he didn't ask us to do anything for it. That and we couldn't have done anything for it. We needed him, which is what we talked about last week, why there was a necessity for a Messiah. The good news is it's done. There is a vineyard full of joy, a kingdom full of joy offered to you. Are you going to rest in it so that you can proclaim it to your friends, or are you going to continue to find your hope and your rest in this world and proclaim that to your friends? We need to not be a burden like the Pharisees and the scribes. Too much, I'm up here because I want to anoint myself or to make myself great among you. I want to use my wisdom, my knowledge to say, hey, look at me, I'm important, I'm good. And I don't serve you as well as I I should, like I talked about last week. Please continue to pray for me. I fail too much. And I need to rest in heaven just as much as you all. I need to rest in God's kingdom so that I can be free to serve better. I apologize for the gospels that I've put forth that were false. The importance of being smart, the importance of being wise, the importance of knowing truth is worthless if it's not pointing to God. It's pointing to me. 
I hope you will take a moment to ask yourself, what are you pointing people to? Ask yourself if you're a burden or if you are God's blessing to this world. Ask yourself, what are the things that you are holding on to this world that are still a burden to you? And ask God to free you. Let's pray. God, your kingdom is serious stuff. It totally affects completely how we live here. We are completely obedient to the kingdom that we put our hope in. I just pray that you'll speak to us about what kingdom that is. May you help us to rest in your kingdom, to find our joy in you. Help us rest in the gospel and the good news that it's done. We're forgiven, we're restored, we're a child of you, and perfect peace and perfect joy is coming in the new kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who do not know that peace and that joy. Bring them to you, God. Make our lives align with your gospel. May our words and our deeds point them to you. May we be a people that is a refreshment and a healer to this community, to this city, to our families, our friends. God, help us. Find our rest in you. Help us to glorify your kingdom. Speak to us every day about the truth and the joy and the greatness of your kingdom. Help us to see the glory of you and your kingdom every day. Remind us constantly because we're quick to forget. God, we just pray that you'll give us a a humility a meekness to bow down when we need to bow down and submit when we need to submit. In your name we pray. Amen.